Good to be with you this morning. How are you today? Okay, how does one preach after he gets broken in a worship song? (laughs) So good to be back with you. It's gone last Sunday at the EFCA District Conference in Kansas City, and that was a rich time meeting with other pastors in our denomination, and uh, wonderful to hear from Tim Stratton as well. I listened to him the past couple days. He gave a great message on the core value of truth. We are in a seven-week series. It was six. It's now seven-week series titled All In, and um, we're looking at our, our mission statement, our four core values, and then a vision statement. And uh, last week, Tim started us off with our core value of truth, that we are committed to the object of truth of Christ, and truth is that which corresponds to reality, and truth is a person, Jesus. And today, we're going to look at gospel, and next week, we'll look at gospel again. It's just really too big to bite off in a single Sunday. Religion is all about rules. Gospel is all about relationship. Let me give you a few examples of religion as I begin. Religion says that one must roll out their mat five times per day and prostrate themselves toward the east at specific times each day at sunup and then at noon, and then at three in the afternoon, and then sundown, and then perhaps before bed, nine or ten o'clock at night, and then each time roll back that mat and put it away. And you must do it this way. That's religion. Religion goes further to say you must pray in Arabic, and if you don't pray in Arabic, then you will not be heard. Even if you don't know Arabic, just memorize those prayers in Arabic. Even if you don't know what those prayers mean, just memorize them, then you'll be heard. That's religion. Or to hit a little closer to home, religion is you must do certain things with your body when you pray. You have to cross your fingers. You have to bow your head. You have to close your eyes. You must conclude every prayer with the mantra, in Jesus' name. You must conclude other prayers with the sign of the cross. That's religion. Now, don't get me wrong to the extent any of those actions might actually help you to worship, help you to pray more effectively. That's fine to use those activities. The body matters. The use of the body in worship is beneficial. But to the extent that they just become an empty mantra, any of those, they are adventures in missing the point. They are religion. Some go to church and they're hoping for good news and instead what they get is a bunch of do-do-do's, do-do all over you. That is religion. At the center of all religions of the world is this idea of karma. In one way or another, almost all religions major on this idea of karma. You give to God, he or she or it, you give to the universe and the universe will then give back to you. And tragically, this has infected a number of churches in Christianity as well, or perhaps branches or splinters of Christianity, in which people are told on a week-in and week-out basis, you give $100 in the offering plate, and then God will give back to you $150 more. That's religion. 
years ago, Susie and I had the wonderful privilege of visiting Mother Teresa's home for the dying in Calcutta, India. And it's the site of what used to be a uh, famous Hindu temple. And uh, we went and saw, uh, this was after Mother Teresa had passed, but we met a number of the nuns there and a number of volunteers there. And uh, it was at this site in Calcutta that was formerly devoted to worship of the goddess Kali. And the goddess Kali is the goddess of uh, change and destruction in the Hindu pantheon. And, and that's where uh, Mother Teresa's home for the dying got started. And the goddess Kali you might have seen is this blue figure with four arms and a bloody sword, and she's standing over one of her victims. And worship happened in that building. And uh, Mother Teresa decided to bring light into that very dark place when she started her home for the dying. And she purchased this plot from the Brahmin caste who had abandoned it. That's the uppermost caste in the uh, Hindu caste system. And uh, she purchased it from them. And over the decades, her uh, ministry at the Home for the Dying and her nuns and the various volunteers literally rescued, have rescued and continue to rescue tens of thousands of people right on the precipice of death. And to bring them in to the Home for the Dying, there it is, and to give them a place to die with dignity, with basic nursing care, with prayer, with the ministry of touch, with love during their final days. And it was such a beautiful thing to be there and to witness this happening with the nuns who were there. And uh, it's interesting, well, when you go back and you read the backstory of the home for the dying, because when Mother Teresa first got there in uh, 1951, I believe it was, she uh, encountered a lot of opposition from the upper caste people in Hinduism because she was told to uh, rescue these people with leprosy or rescue people with tuberculosis or AIDS was to interfere with their karma. They were working out their karma. They were working out their debt from their previous misdeeds of previous lives. And for you to enter in and to seek to help them at this point is to interfere with their karma. That is religion. Mother Teresa and the nuns, of course, courageously persevered, and in 1952, they founded that home for the dying where she interrupted religion with the grace of Jesus Christ, and the rest, they say, is history. Religion in so many forms is characterized by seemingly arbitrary rules like that, arbitrary rituals like that that seem to make no human sense if we just use some common sense about caring for one another. Religion is characterized by those arbitrary rules, whereas gospel is characterized by relationships. Religion is characterized by a focus on the externals. What I do, how I might be able to appear before you, how I can show that I am spiritual or religious or whatever it might be, gospel is characterized by a focus on internals, a focus on the heart, a focus on character, a focus on a living relationship with Christ. The word gospel comes out of uh, the ancient Greek, and the ancient Greek and the New Testament, gospel simply means good news. That's all it means. It's good news. And we are really committed to the gospel of Christ Jesus here at Carney E. Free. So, so we're going to take a couple Sundays to talk about this, and also we seek 
in all of our ministries to be compelled by the gospel. We, we seek that what we would do together, both on Sunday mornings and our various ministries throughout the week, would be led by the gospel of Christ. Not a bunch of shoulds, but out of the love of a Savior whose grace sets us free. You see, the gospel is good news, not good religion. That's the big idea that I hope you take home with you today. If you take nothing else but that, would you take that home with you? Let's say it out loud. The gospel is good news, not good religion. So we're going to be talking today about a couple of ways that it is good news, not good religion. I love the story that we just read from Luke chapter 7 as Mary just read that beautiful narrative of Jesus and uh, this woman with a jar of perfume and Simon the Pharisee, and it's a beautiful portrait of the gospel message itself. And so we're just going to camp there here for the remainder of our time today. These next moments, if you would turn there with me to Luke chapter 7, it starts at verses 36 and goes to verse 50. And this is Jesus interacting with, again, this woman of the city and Simon the Pharisee. What does woman of the city mean? It's code language for prostitution. We would say today she was a woman of the night. That's what she was. It was obvious to everyone Everyone knew this woman has a reputation, and here she comes into Simon's house uninvited. She is a woman of the city. She is living within a Roman culture that allowed for prostitution, and it was rampant in Rome, in the Roman Empire, and allowed for promiscuity, and that was rampant. But she's also kind of sectioned off. She's cordoned off here in this moment in a rabbi's house. In a Pharisee's house in ancient Judaism, which was known for its monogamy and its commitment to traditional marriage. And here she comes into that house, and Jesus knew all of that. And even so, Jesus welcomes her to stand next to him and to worship him. You see, the gospel welcomes us in the midst of our shame. It is good news. The gospel welcomes us right in the midst of our shame. It welcomed her right in the midst of her shame. You just picture this. It's an amazing portrait that Mary just read for us. Jesus and his disciples have been on this long walk through the hills of southern Galilee. The last time we saw them, they were in this town called Nain where he heals a young boy in the south of Galilee, by the Sea of Galilee, and then they're walking on this long journey, and uh, they're invited, it seems, to Simon the Pharisee's house. And Jesus' reputation is spreading at this time, such that people are hearing about the things that he's doing, the things that he's saying, and they're inviting him in. They want to learn more from him. And so he gets invited into Simon's house, and as he gets there, this is the normal, ordinary portrait when you go into someone's home. You would take off your sandals, and you would go and you would sit down at a common place, and as we might give someone coffee or tea when they come into our house, they would give some snacks or maybe a meal around the table. And so they would recline together. They'd take off the sandals and they'd recline together, and their feet would be out, and they'd kind of be reclining, lying down like, lying down like this with uh, one hand on their head, uh, reclining well with their elbow here, holding them up, and the other hand picking up the grapes, picking up those delicious Middle Eastern olives and the hummus and the pita bread. Mm, speaking of lunch. 
Okay, and as they do that, their feet are around the perimeter because their feet stink. Okay, they're, they're bare feet around the perimeter and they stink because there are no showers and perhaps they get a bath every couple of weeks. And so the customary pattern is you enter into someone's house and that person has a servant that would go around and wash everyone's feet. And this woman comes in uninvited to Simon's house and she goes first like a beeline to Jesus. She plays the part of a servant here in this moment, and she begins to weep over him, weep over his feet and, and wash his feet with her tears. And then he takes that, she takes out her long locks of hair and, and begins to, to wipe his feet with her hair. And they're caked with dust. Or if it's raining in the south of Galilee, as it does frequently, they might be caked with mud. And she kisses his feet. And then she, she pops the top on this bottle of perfume, this bottle of oil, and she starts to massage his feet one by one and, and give him a massage perhaps in between the crevices of his toes and give him a pedicure as it, as it were. And, and Simon sees all of this and Simon says to himself, oh, she's such a sinner. If he was really a prophet, he would know that this is a sinner who has come in, and uh, he's allowing a sinner to worship him, allowing a sinner to touch him. I thought it would be a good idea to ask my wife if she would reenact this whole scene with me. <laughs> she thought otherwise. But again, Simon's just sitting there. And uh, you got this amazing juxtaposition. You got one woman who, she doesn't care what she looks like, just the Jesus would look a little better. And what a lesson for us to not care what we look like, but that God would be exalted a little bit more, that he would look a little bit better. And then you got this other guy, Simon, this Pharisee, this religious leader, and he's looking on and he says to himself in verse 39, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Well, what's Simon doing there? He's labeling her. He's shaming her. He's marginalizing her and putting her off to the side. She's not someone who sins. She is a sinner. She is fundamentally sin. She's different than everyone else in this room. While we are not sinners, she is a sinner. That's what he's doing. He's shaming her. You ever think that way about certain groups of people? Oh, those sinners. These people over here, we're not going to hang out with that. I mean, we have this amazing capacity in our culture today to shame certain people, to label certain people and section them off. You don't believe me? Just ask any high schooler. High schoolers do this with expertise to each other. Social media just advances it more and more today. Friends, we really got to guard against this ourselves. Shame is one of the most potent ways of crippling someone. Maybe you've had that experience. I certainly have. Religion seems very good at labeling and shaming people, but we got to notice here in this passage that Jesus doesn't shame her. He welcomes her. It's really amazing that he does so. She's obviously a woman. A woman is second class in both the Jewish and the Roman cultures, and he welcomes her. Jesus regularly welcomed women into his inner circle, which was unheard of in Judaism or in the Roman culture of the day. 
Moreover, she's a prostitute. Moreover, she's just gotten really dirty. She's gotten really ugly. And he just welcomes her in the midst of that. Such is the love of God and the truth of the gospel to welcome us. I need to regularly ask myself this question, and this story forced me to ask myself this question last week. Am I more like this woman? Am I more like that guy? Am I more like the guy who says, these people over here, you stay away from me, you stay away from my people. I can't have anything to do with you. Marginalize and shame other people. Or am I more like the woman who says, I am willing to get dirty, I don't care what anyone else thinks, I am going to worship Christ. And then, of course, the response of Christ is what we deeply want, to say, yeah, no matter who you are, no matter what you've come in with, we're not going to shame you. The way of Jesus is to welcome people right in the midst of their differences, and then not to blink or to fret, for it's in the midst of his gospel This is what his gospel does in the midst of our shame. It welcomes us. It really is good news. Any shame that you've ever experienced, you can still be welcomed into God's family. It's it's good news. Moreover, the gospel goes on to say that you are forgiven in the midst of your debt. The gospel forgives us in the midst of our debt. It is really good news. So Jesus answers Simon as the story goes on. Um, Simon says, of course, verse 39, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is and who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answers, says to Simon, Simon, I got something to say to you. Simon, let's go back. There's something I want to tell you right now. And, And Simon has the gall to say, teacher, go ahead and say it. Be careful what you ask for, Simon. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50 denarii. And when they could not repay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. So 500 denarii here is about a year and a half of salary. No way to repay that debt. One has 500 denarii of debt to this money lender. Debt represents sin in this story. And it's obvious no one can pay a year and a half of salary Well, when they get into that amount of debt. But also he says, you know, in a zero-sum economy, if you have 50 denarii of debt, that's about two months of wages, and you're not going to be able to repay that either. Debt represents sin. And in both cases, both people are broke. They're both bankrupt and unable, totally unable to repay the money lender. Debt represents sin here, and some has more, and some have less, but in either case, they're both broke. This is the nature of sin. We commit it, and we cannot erase it. No matter how many good deeds, we cannot erase our bad deeds. And so Jesus says to Simon, okay, granted, Simon, She has more bad deeds than you. She may have 500 denarii worth of bad deeds, and you might have only 50 denarii worth of bad deeds. But listen, Simon, she has come to me in love. She has chosen to come and worship me. And she will be forgiven 
while you, with your 50 denarii of debt and your self-righteousness, you will still be in your sin, utterly unable to repay that outside of the forgiveness of God. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. You know, part of the problem, part of the problem with looking down at other people is so long as you are looking down, you can't look up. You can't look up to God when you're looking down at other people. And this was a big piece of Simon's problem. He's looking down at this woman, and so he cannot see Jesus, can't see the living God right in front of him. By the way, this is the kind of thing that also, not only is it a failure to worship God right in front of us because we're looking down at others, if there's anything that makes people flee from the church, what is it? It's the sense that the people of the church would look down at me. People of the church would, would judge me. But Jesus instead says, no, we, we don't do it that way. The grace of the gospel says all have sinned and fallen short of the honor and the glory and the standard of God. I hope you'd agree. Wouldn't you agree? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and fallen short of our own standards, let alone the much higher standards of God. If we're honest, we would all say, yes, I have fallen short of my standards, let alone the much higher standards of God. So who am I to judge the person that is next to me? All of us have sinned. All of us have some denarii to repay, which we cannot repay. But grace interrupts the ranking game. Grace interrupts karma. Grace interrupts religion. The gospel of grace welcomes us and says, you can come in, I will have you, I invite you, I forgive you. No matter your debt, which you could never repay, I will forgive. And this is the story, though, that we were told about this woman who is a prostitute. She came as she was with her debt, and she worshiped. She was perhaps a, a divorced woman several times. She certainly didn't use her body for pure reasons. Perhaps she was a lousy mother, but she was forgiven for all of that. Her shame was eliminated. Her debt was eliminated. And then finally, the good news of Jesus enables her to go free in peace. The gospel sends us, out, sends us out with confidence. It is, can I hear it? It's good news. The gospel sends us out with confidence. It's good news. It liberates us from all shame. You're not marginalized if you belong to Christ. You belong to the family of God. It doesn't matter what anyone else says about you. You have no debt anymore if you belong to Christ. You've been completely forgiven. And all the more as well, you are sent out with this good news. Go in peace. The gospel sends us out with confidence. You look once more at these final lines of this beautiful story. Verse 49, then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, 
Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. They say, who does he think he is forgiving sins? And who does she think she is? She, she better know that he cannot forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Oh, but there's God forgiving her sins. So who does she think she is? Who does he think he is? And Jesus simply says, go in peace. Pay them no mind. People judging you? Pay them no mind. Go only before the Father. Seek to obey him. Seek to live in total trust and dependence before him. And people will have their chatter. Pay them no mind. The gospel liberates us from the noise of mere religion. You see, there's this relational component to the gospel that we see in this message. We see in the interaction between Jesus and this woman. The relational component of the gospel is no matter how much what we have failed, no matter how much what we've been marginalized, we are welcomed into God's family. We can become his sons and daughters by faith in Christ. And, and, and he just welcomes us. He wants us to know that we belong, that we are accepted into his full love and his full embrace. And again, that's the woman. She enters in with a sense of fear and trepidation and guilt and shame, and she leaves with confidence. You enter into Jesus with fear. You enter before God with shame. With, with knees knocking, you leave with confidence. That's the relational component. But there's also this justice component to the gospel, which is preserved for us by the cross of Christ. Stick with me here as I do just a little bit of theology right now. There's this justice component that is preserved by the cross of Christ. And the justice component is this. God hates sin. He hates your sin. And you have sinned and fallen short of his standards. He hates my sin. And I have sinned and fallen short of his standards. And that means I am separated from the living God on my own. That's what it means. Because God in his purity will not look on my sin. He will not have fellowship with me in the midst of my sin. That's justice. But God interrupts that justice as well by sending the grace of his son out of love for all that he has created, by still choosing to preserve his justice and at the same time choosing to preserve his love by giving his son as an atoning sacrifice for us that he vicariously gave himself for us as a substitute in order that he could both preserve the justice of God and the love of God coming together at the cross and we can be reconciled to God. Yes, amen. The justice and the love of God coming together at the cross of Christ, it is the central gospel message that makes the difference. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. God made him who had zero sins, no sins at all, no shame, no guilt, to become sin for you and me, to take on our sin in order that we might through him become the righteousness of God. And so, when God sees you, he doesn't see shame any longer. He doesn't see guilt any longer. He doesn't see any of your failures any longer. He sees the righteousness of Christ dwelling in you by faith. That's what he sees. And therefore, you belong to him. And therefore, we get to go out in peace and live out of that a newness of life, a new boldness, a new obedience out of that. 
Friends, God is not just in spite of being loving. He's just because he is loving. Okay? If he was less than just, he would be less than loving. He's just because he is loving. And what we do is merely turn and receive because we know we could never repay that debt. Okay? We turn and we receive by grace through faith. Now, Next week, I encourage you to come back, but because next week, well, we're going to spend some time looking at a visual that depicts all of this that will really help you, I think, understand what Jesus did, theologically speaking, at the cross. And it's a great portrait, a great simple visual, though, that you can use to explain to yourself and explain to your kids and to others what the gospel is and how it makes a difference for us from this point. But for today, suffice it to say, please come back next week. There's your teaser. That's my best broadcast impersonation. Come back next week. But today, suffice it to say, for it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works such that no one can boast. If I were you, I would underline in my Bible in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace, through faith, a gift. Free. And you just remind yourself, this woman, this prostitute, was not forgiven because of her lavish generosity to Jesus. That was beautiful, but that's not the reason she was forgiven. She was forgiven because the God of the universe saved her by grace and she had faith. Jesus says at the very end of the story, your faith has saved you, go in peace. And so it is for all of us. By grace, through faith, we are forgiven by Christ and brought into a relationship with God. And I, I just want to urge you that uh, you, you want to receive that by faith, by grace, not seek to add anything to it. The natural way of the human heart is always to add, what God, add to what God has done. Don't try to add to it. Simply receive it. Simply receive it. When you try to add to what God has done, you're saying that what Jesus did was not enough. And when you refuse to forgive someone, who has apologized to you. You say, no, more justice needs to be meted out to them. Then you're saying the cross of Christ was not enough. You're saying that Jesus has to suffer more. You're saying that person has to suffer more, that what Jesus did wasn't enough. No, we, we live out of the cross of Christ, and we say what he did was absolutely, unequivocally enough we surrender to you, Lord Jesus, by grace, through faith. Uh, your gospel sets us free. And if the Spirit of the Lord is on you, you are free indeed. You can go in peace. Shame is shattered. Debt is paid. Go in peace. This is the good news, not good religion. Amen? This is the good news. It's really, really, really good news. It's good news for yesterday. All of your sins were forgiven, and you were welcomed into God's family. It's good news for today. All of your sins are forgiven, and you still are in God's family. It's good news for tomorrow. Any future mistake you make, any future failure you fall into, don't try to do it. Grace has set you free. Now obey the Lord Jesus Christ. But anything you fail to do in the future, that also will be forgiven by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are in his family, welcomed into eternity with God, saved by grace, through faith. No charge to you. Go in peace.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your gospel is so good. You're such a kind and loving God. <laughs> this is the central message of the Christian faith, and it couldn't be any better. Not a bunch of rules. The gospel. We're welcomed into your family. Other people might marginalize us, but we are welcomed by God, by faith. Thank you. We're invited. We're chosen. We're set free. We are forgiven. We thank you. So, Father God, we all choose you again by faith this morning. You have chosen us, and we freely say back to you, Lord Jesus, you made me. You love me. You died for me. I receive you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your lavish love that sets us free. May we go in peace. May we live out of that gospel this week. We love you, God. Amen. Would you stand with us?